0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From BBC Science Focus Magazine, this is Instant Genius, a bite sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Alice Lipscomb Southwell, the managing editor at BBC Science Focus Magazine. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Jamie Craggs, the aquarium curator at the Horniman Museum and Gardens. He's a coral expert who founded Project Coral in order to research the ways that corals breed. He tells us all about corals and explains why they're so important. Ooh. So, Jamie, you're a coral expert. So, just to start us off, what exactly is a coral? Is it a plant or is it an animal?
1: Well, corals are one of those strange things. They are animals, but people think you know they're either rocks or plants or animals. But no, they are they are animals. So they're they're closely related to sea anemones and jellyfish, and they're predominantly made up of colonial uh, animals so they're made up of a unit called a polyp and uh, multiple polyps grow together to form the coral colony but they are very much an animal they have uh, you know stinging cells and tentacles and a mouth but what complicates it is the majority of corals also have a relationship with an algae that lives inside them. So an algae is a bit like a plant, plant-like animal that lives in the ocean. And so these plants also inhabit uh, the coral and live within the coral. And then it even further is they, they build a skeleton which, which they live in. It's like a calcium carbonate cup that the polyp, the soft, fleshy polyp, lives within this calcium carbonate cup. So they also build uh, a rock-like structure. So they're, they're, they're interesting animals.
0: So, how many species of coral are there?
1: So, I mean, certainly we're finding more as as time goes on, but it's estimated around two thousand species have been identified so far, and, and they inhabit all oceans uh, of the world, from uh, shallow water in the tropics right the way to the deep uh, deep Arctic Ocean. So, they inhabit all areas of our, of our oceans
0: because that's quite surprising. I think people generally think corals only live in hot countries on in tropical regions, but we do get them around the UK, don't we? And also you'll get them right in the bottom of the ocean.
1: Yeah, very much so. So we, we have a number of species around the UK and we have quite significant coral reefs, um, certainly off the coast of Scotland, um, that, that form very big structures. Yeah. So they are Yeah, they're significant in other places of the world. Obviously, the tropics is where we have the the most diversity and and the most significant structures, things like the Great Barrier Reef that everyone knows. Uh, But yeah, there are corals um, all over.
0: How long have corals been around for? When did they first evolve?
1: So, corals as we know them now, so there's something called the Scleractinian corals, There are modern corals, Uh, they've been around a little over 200 million years. So, they they first appeared in the middle of the Jurassic period. Types of corals did um, survive before that, but they became extinct. But they they evolved around 530 odd million years ago, but became extinct. Uh, The modern corals that we now know, yeah, about 200 million years.
0: So, does that mean then that corals sort of Died out and then evolved again.
1: Ultimately, yeah, uh, the a new the the modern coral uh, filled the niche that was was uh, left when uh, you know the Rigose, um species became extinct.
0: So you said earlier that corals have got these stinging cells. So what do corals actually eat?
1: Corals um, consume a huge variety of, of prey. Everything from uh, they they'll gain nutrients from the water itself, so things like nitrogen compounds and phosphorus compounds that they'll absorb from the water. They can consume um, small uh, items like bacteria that are associated with the mucus layer, right the way up to larger items like zooplankton, and even you know some species of corals can consume fish themselves. You know they they can actually hunt. Uh, uh, you're quite big, big prey items. So they have a a big range of uh, that's on their diet, I suppose.
0: And how do they actually kill that prey? Will it just be sort of floating past? They'll grab hold of it and sting it to death.
1: Uh, yeah, a, a number of different ways. You know, bacteria they use the mucus uh, that they secrete out of their mouth covers the coral, and they can trap bacteria, all sorts of um, organic matter, can stick to that, and then they'll suck that mucus back in. But then bigger prey items uh their tentacles are sort of armed with a battery of stinging cells uh, much the same way as a, a jellyfish does this you know as a as a prey item comes in contact with with the tentacle they fire these batteries of stinging cells that are called nematocysts and they uh, you know, ultimately inject venom into the the prey item paralyze it and uh, and then they they consume it so yeah they 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 sting
0: And if we prodded a coral would we feel the stings
1: First, we don't want to go around prodding corals, but um, <laughs> no, you can. Uh, yeah, very much so. In sensitive areas, so if you were to get stung on the on your wrist, for instance, where the skin is quite thin, yeah, you can get stung, and it, it's a bit like a stinging stinging nettle sting. There's different um, strengths of sting depending on the species, but unfortunately, my work it's part and parcel of it. We get stung all the time working with the corals, and it's um it's one of those that's sort of three o'clock in the morning. That sting will be itching like crazy. And and keeping you awake for a couple of nights, and uh, but yeah, they they yes, they can sting you definitely.
0: And does anything eat them, or do those stinging cells keep them pretty
1: safe? They, you know, obviously that that is predominantly there for prey capture, but they they do also use the stinging cells to protect themselves and also uh, defend themselves against neighbouring corals that are trying to encroach on their area. But there are lots of species that also feed on on corals, so. Uh, many uh, butterfly fish uh, will specifically feed on the coral polyps uh, parrot fish will be you know grazing that that top layer of tissue off but also crunching away at the skeleton and then there's lots of invertebrates as well from crabs and worms right the way up to crown of thorn starfish which are a huge problem uh, for coral reefs around the world you know as we're destabilizing some of the population balances and the and the community balances in in reefs where we're over Fishing potentially a species that will control crown of thorns starfish. That's allowing these uh, crown of thorns starfish to explode in numbers, and they feed on the coral themselves, and they can cause huge destruction in uh, in a comparatively short period of time.
0: And there's nothing we can do to stop the crown of thorns starfish.
1: The first thing is is to not remove the predator of the crown of thorns. But you know, there's active removal programs. Um, you know, where you get these these big crown of thorns outbreaks. You know, teams of divers uh, ultimately with um, a spear will just be spearing them and removing them that's the best way of, of actually physically removing them from the reef and then they're brought back to shore and and disposed of but it's that instability that's happened um, in the ecosystem that have allowed these these crown of thorns to explode things like conch, uh, you know, a very large uh, mollusk that feeds on the on the crown of thorns that's actually harvested for for food and um, where we've Taken too many of those out of the ocean, it's um, it's removed these top-down pressures that control the population of starfish naturally.
0: And you said that the, there's parrotfish that will eat the corals as well. I've heard before that white sand beaches that look all beautiful are actually parrotfish poo. Is that true?
1: Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yep. Yeah. Um, so they are. They get through a huge amount of this this calcium carbonate. Uh, material. So that's what the, the coral skeleton um, is made of calcium carbonate. That's what the coral um, lays down itself. And as the parrotfish are are taking chunks out of the coral, predominantly to get to the soft flesh and the algae that lives inside the, the coral, they also take that, uh, uh, that calcium carbonate structure in, into the gut and ultimately poo that out as as nice, fine white sand.
0: So, how long can corals live? You've said that they're quite threatened, but if they were just completely perfect and lovely and happy, um, how long could they live in the ocean?
1: So, the, there's differences depending on the species and the area of the world that they live in. Um, some can be short-lived. you know, 10 years um, could be the life cycle of a, a coral, whereas other species and in different environments could live as long as 5,000 years. So, they, they are the oldest animals that live on the ocean. So, they... It's quite broad, depending on yeah where they where they come from.
0: And I imagine those longer lived ones are they generally the deep water ones that are growing quite slowly and they've got the long lifespans.
1: Yes, but also we do have some tropical species that form these these colossal boulders, and they're very very slow at growing. But there's been some cores that have been taken, a bit like a, taking a, a core from a tree, where you're looking at the tree rings. Corals can do the same thing. So, we can look at the cores and depending on the band that's been laid down, it it tells you a huge amount of information about what the climate was doing in the year that that material was laid down. And some of these big colonies have have been sort of looking at each of those bands. You can then count and and see how old they are and, and thousands of years old, some of these tropical species.
0: So, can they survive out of water though?
1: Um, again, it's species spe- specific. So many corals live in the tidal zone. So obviously, the tide's coming in and out twice a day, um, and those individuals, yes, they they come out of out of the water twice a day every day of their lives, and they they have mechanisms of coping with that. So they produce a lot of mucus, uh, which keeps the the colony protected against the sort of harsh, you know, midday tropical sun that's cooking them. Uh, that that keeps the um, them from dehydrating in essence so they they produce a huge amount of mucus to protect themselves
0: because you'll see something similar with sea anemones won't you when they'll sort of pull their tendrils in if it if they're exposed and then sort of Feed up into a little ball, and then when the water comes back again, just start opening up again.
1: Yeah, I mean, in in the the inter, it's called the intertidal zone. It's um, yeah, that's an incredibly harsh environment to to live. You know, half the time you're submerged, submerged, and it's oxygen rich waters, and then that can disappear, and you can be rained on. You can have high high amounts of sunlight, so you have to have coping mechanisms to deal with that. Uh, you know. the those huge extremes and the sea and enemy pulls its like you say pulls its tentacles in and sort of hunkers down a limpet sort of sucks onto the rock and and protects itself that way so there's different mechanisms to to survive in that that harsh environment
0: you said that the corals contain this symbiotic algae now are there lots of different types of this algae and can it exist by itself without the corals
1: the predominant strain. So there's there's about nine different genuses that, of of these algae, but the predominant one is something called Cymbidinium and. Rather than calling it a species, they're called clades, and so there's around eight clades of of that cymbadinium may. They can live open uh, you know away from the coral and in fact we culture those in the lab just in conical flasks so they they you can give them the nutrients and the and there's carbon dioxide and light and and they will grow independent of the coral the benefit of living within the coral is it's a nice safe place to live you're not going to get eaten and so that is the symbiotic relationship that that has evolved over over these you know tens of thousands of years the algae lives within the coral nice safe place to live and in return it gives food to the coral so so we know again depending on species somewhere between 70 to 90% of the food for the coral comes from the symbiotic relationship uh, with the zooxanthellae
0: And we hear a lot in the news about the coral reefs bleaching where they eject their algae when they get stressed. So when they've bleached, will they die or can they get their algae back?
1: It's sort of yes and no answer. It very much depends on how long that high and is predominantly driven by temperature. So as we hit um, above the maximum threshold of temperature in the summer, if we go above that threshold, that causes the bleaching. If that is a short episode of just a couple of weeks, then ultimately the coral can still capture enough food uh, to maintain its energy level. If the temperature then drops back down, the, the algae can recolonize and that relationship can continue. What we're seeing, though, is these bleaching events are becoming more protracted. So we're getting longer periods of warming uh, at the maximum temperatures uh, of the summer, and ultimately the coral then starves. It just can't capture enough uh, prey items to to get it over that that um, stress period. Um, and in that sort of case, the coral dies, the skeleton that's formed, and the skeleton creates this huge three-dimensional structure that allows this explosion of life to occur on, on coral reefs. If the coral dies, that structure becomes very brittle, breaks down, and it becomes very two-dimensional. So all that associated life on a coral reef actually disappears. It should be pointed out, coral bleaching it's not a modern phenomenon. It has happened throughout uh, the coral's evolution. What we are finding now is that these bleaching events are becoming more frequent, they're becoming more extreme, and you know we're, we're not giving enough time for the corals to recover from one bleaching event before the next one sort of slams into it. And it's these sort of constant onslaught of these temperatures that is causing the biggest concern uh, for, for reefs around the world.
0: And why are corals so important? What's their role in ecosystems?
1: So corals are, they're a bit like the buildings of a city. Uh, they, they construct the reef themsel- uh, themselves by laying down this calcium carbonate skeleton. And they, they make this three-dimensional structure of the reef that allows a huge uh, variety of life to occur. So we know that they cover a really small percentage of the ocean floor, less than 0.1% of the ocean floor is actually a coral reef. But within that 0.1%, a quarter of all marine species reside on coral reefs. So they are absolutely jam-packed with life. And it's the coral making this three-dimensional structure that allows this explosion of life to occur. So they're really important from a marine species point of view. But they're also really important from a human point of view. we We get a lot of ecosystem services from reefs. So that three-dimensional structure that they build is really efficient at diffusing wave energy and stopping coastal erosion. so they're they're very important coastal barriers uh, to stop coastal erosion. We know that you know a huge population of the planet, around five hundred million people around the world, rely on reefs for food security from fisheries. Um, increasingly because of tourism. Um, so when you. Sort of tot up all these ecosystem services that they provide, it's estimated about $1 trillion uh, they contribute to the global economy. So, they're really important biologically, they're really important from a human perspective as well.
0: So, we said that uh, the warming can have an effect on the corals, but what else threatens them?
1: C- climate change is the biggest threat globally to uh, coral reefs. And we know it's an anthrop- dr- uh, anthropogenic-driven climate change is is the number one threat. And we in order for reefs to survive into the th- future, we really need to be hitting those those, um, those climate targets to to stop CO two emissions. But then there's lots of other threats that are, are compounding this pressure on reefs and those when we think about local threats we think about um, issues of overfishing, local nutrient uh, supplies so things like you're putting fertilizer onto agricultural land to boost crop production ultimately that that excess nutrient makes itself it makes its way into the oceans and that causes you know phytoplankton to bloom and an increased nutrient is really bad for reefs. We've got lots of issues of, of sort of non-invasive species uh, or non-endemic species and invasive species being introduced onto reefs. And all of these are putting increased pressure on, on corals themselves.
0: You said that tourism is really important for coral reefs as that brings income to certain regions. So which reefs should I visit if I want to go and see one or should I even be visiting them in the first place? Is it better if tourists leave them alone?
1: it is a really difficult question that because we do know that if you value something you are more likely to protect it we also know that the more people visit uh, the more pressures that put on uh, puts on reefs from you know increased pollution increased water use all of the things that are associated with overpopulation so it is a really that's a real double edged sword really is you know, if if we empower people to look after their reefs then and that comes through you know generating income uh, so that they can support their families they're more likely to want to look after that so but we have to do that in a responsible way um where we think about which areas we want tourists to go to how we manage you know the pollution that ultimately people bring as part of that tourism so it's um it's a fine line to tread, definitely.
0: What's the best reef that you've visited?
1: I, I think probably Palau, which is out in the Pacific, is, is just beautiful. And it's beautiful because it's very remote. It's a long way to, to travel to get there. It's relatively sparsely populated. And the the reefs are in incredible condition there. what was quite interesting is, you know, I went there uh, over a couple of years before the pandemic. In 2012, a uh, uh, typhoon hit and absolutely decimated uh, the western side of Palau uh, to the point that the coral coverage went down to less than five percent it was really hit hard but because there's so little human influence it has actually uh, rebounded back so quickly um, that you will dive on a reef there and not know that there was an impact it's incredible and it just shows you that They are resilient reefs and and corals can recover um, just as long as we give them, we remove the pressure to allow them to recover naturally.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was coral expert, Dr Jamie Craggs. To hear him tell me even more about corals and how they breed, head over to the Instant Genius Extra podcast. The latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is available now. Pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com.